Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can become a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or just want to get connected, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. And if you want to find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website, denverchurch.org, or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. This Tuesday, December 6th, is Colorado Gives Day. Colorado Gives Day is a day that unites all Coloradans in a common goal to strengthen the state's nonprofits by giving to their favorite charities and nonprofit organizations online. We are excited to be considered among the nonprofits that you believe are making a real difference in our community. As part of our faith community, we invite you to financially support the work of DCC and beyond as we seek to embody Christ's mercy and presence in our city so that we might become a channel of healing for those on the margins. You can give now by texting Denver Church to 77977. Thank you for your continued support. We truly can only exist and do this work through your humbling generosity. All right, let's get to the teaching. Here's, uh, here's what I love about that is that everybody on the platform except for Hannah is a volunteer. So these are people who give out their time during the week to rehearse, who show up here early while most of you are probably still sleeping uh, to do this. And so as you applaud, know that you're applauding for people who are demonstrating to you what generosity looks like by giving of their time and their talent and their resources. And I think it's not just people here. It's people who greeted you when you came in. It's people who helped you get parked. It's people who are making your coffee so that you can stay awake during the intolerable sermons, on and on. Uh, So thank you to those of you who do volunteer and continuously show up week after week, uh, not just here on Sundays, but throughout the week, to make DCC what it is. Uh, We are deeply grateful for that. So with that said, uh, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 2. If you were with us last week, you know that during Advent, we're going to spend time in Matthew's chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2 looking at the five dreams that Matthew talks about in his narrative around the birth of Jesus. And what we'll do is explore what is happening in these stories surrounding them. And so with that said, I'll begin reading in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. 
When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now, this is a somewhat popular story, and it's somewhat popular because we're familiar with the Magi, typically giving them the name wise men. And one of the reasons we're typically familiar with this is because we've all seen nativity scenes where there's Jesus and Joseph and Mary flanked by shepherds and a few animals and three wise men standing there holding gifts. And we're so familiar with the wise men, they actually have their own song, We Three Kings. And incidentally, I actually Googled that in preparation for the teaching today. This is a couple of weeks ago, just because I was like, I want to see if there's any lyrics here that might be a part of the teaching. And the first hit that came up were the Wiggles singing that song. <clears throat> yep. When we talk here at Denver Community Church about being a healing presence in the world, that reminded me we have a lot of work to do if the Wiggles are the first hit. But they have their own song. They have their own place in the nativity. There's traditions around them that have risen up over thousands of years. There's the Italian traveler and historian, Marco. Oh, yeah. And a lot of people have discounted his writings, probably rightfully so. But he's the one who argued that in his ventures into the east, he went to the town where these people were from. And indeed, they were three kings. And each of them had their own gift, which is why we believe there has to be three of them. There's some who assign names to the wise men, Casper and Melchior and Balthazar, and all sorts of things and assumptions like are, are surround this group of people. But then there's also the speculation, like where are they actually from? I mean, it says they're from the east, but there was a lot of territories and countries and towns and cities that were east of Jerusalem. Why did they come? That's another question that no one really can answer. I mean, there would have been other things in the heavens that they might have seen. And what about the star? Now, I know some of the more scientific-minded people have been like, well, actually, if you rewind the clock to that period, you would understand that Jupiter was in retrograde, and you're like, okay, I get it, you're smart. And that's just more speculation. And while these people might seem familiar and because we see them every year, and there might be a lot of speculation, they're actually people that are shrouded in mystery, and there's a lot that we don't know. However, in this time frame, during the reign of King Herod, as Matthew says, just like in any other time frame in which humanity has lived, there were expectations and opinions that were among the people of that time. There were also political realities that existed in that time, and there was religious realities that existed in that time. And maybe with a little bit of digging around some of those things, we'll begin to see why Matthew concludes the story about the Magi the way he does. Because there were people who had expectations, and the ones who received Matthew's gospel as the original readers, who would have been Jewish people, had some assumptions about who or what was going on and some expectations about what was going on. And some of the expectations they had were because of what was written in the Hebrew Scriptures. 
Now, there's one story that I think is by far the most bizarre story in the Hebrew Scriptures that Matthew seems to be referencing and pointing to. It's found in Numbers chapter 24. The people of Israel have been liberated from slavery in the land of Egypt, and they're heading toward the land that God had sworn and promised them on an oath to their forefather Abraham. And on their way, they're getting into battles with other countries, and as they're fighting with these other countries, the king of Moab, whose name is Balak, gets nervous because he realizes these people are steamrolling everyone in their path. And so he decides that he should hire a guy named Balaam. Now, Balaam was called a magi in the time that Matthew wrote his Gospels. And Balak, the king of Moab, goes to the magi named Balaam and hires him to pronounce curses on the people of Israel so that should they attack Moab, Moab will definitely win. The problem is Balaam initially said, I can't do it. God said I can't. So Balak doubles down, sends him more payment, sends him more prestigious officials, and Balaam says, okay, I'll go, because God said I can go. But God said I can only go if I say what God tells me to, so there's no guarantees. And on the way back to Moab, we read that Balaam is riding his donkey, and his donkey keeps veering off to one side or the other and eventually crunches his leg against the wall, and Balaam begins beating his donkey. And his donkey says, hey man, what's that about? Which is a loose translation of the Hebrew. Which is really fascinating because what's really going on is there's an angel of the Lord standing there, and the donkey can see him, and Balaam can't. And so in some ways, the, ba- the, the donkey sees more than Balaam. It's fascinating to me, by the way, that in the ancient world, God would even speak through jackasses. <laughs> and he still does the same thing today. <laughs> Balaam eventually makes it to Moab, and he's overlooking the people of Israel, and he pronounces seven oracles, but to Balak, Balak's dismay, they're all blessings, not curses. And in the fourth oracle, this is what the magi, Balaam, says. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, whose name is also Israel. And a scepter, which represents the power of a king, will rise out of Israel. I see him, but not, ne- not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. In Matthew's day, these Hebrew scriptures had been translated into Greek because that's what most people in the world spoke. And it didn't say a scepter will rise out of Israel. It said a man or a king will rise out of Israel. This from the mouth of a magi. There's another prophecy from the Hebrew scriptures found in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah writes these words at a time where the people were in exile, and he's speaking on behalf of God, saying, God is going to restore your nation, restore your fortunes. And he tells them what the world is going to look like one day when the king of Israel sits on the throne. And listen to Isaiah's language in Isaiah chapter 60. He says, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. 
The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. Riches of the nations will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. Now, if you are living in Israel as a, as a Jewish person in the first century, and you have been pushed out of your country by the Romans in their conquering of your nation, and you're receiving this gospel and reading these words, you're hearing the echoes of this story and this prophet. Now, what's interesting is that this expectation that existed in the hearts of the Jewish people, it wasn't just for them. It was actually believed in much of the Eastern world that there would one day become a ruler over the world that would come up out of Judea. And we know this because Suetonius, who was a Roman historian sympathetic to Rome, wrote these words. There had spread all over the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. What he recognized, along with other historians, he's not alone, was people in the Eastern world believed, for whatever reason, there was some legend, there was some story, and it began to take hold during the Roman occupation of those areas that a king would rise out of Judea. With all of these expectations swirling, Matthew writes the words, some magi show up and say, we saw his star rise, and we've come to find him. Matthew's playing with the expectations. He's also playing with the politics of the day. And he's playing with the religion of the day. Now, I realize that politics and religion don't make for polite dinner conversation. And since we're not having dinner, we're going to talk about it. And let me add, by the way, politics and religion aren't the problem. It's how we talk about politics and religion that are the problem. We're too partisan and we're too dogmatic. Maybe if we could learn to be a little less unpleasant, we would find they make for a very interesting dinner conversation. But I digress. Matthew pushes into the political realm. The first thing he says is, the Magi show up and say, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Now, we know something about this title because of another historian who was born Jewish, but wrote for the Romans about the Jewish people, and his name is Josephus. And Josephus tells us that King Herod who was on the throne, who the Magi visited, years before this story, there was some upheaval happening in Judea. And so Herod relied on his connections and his relationships with those who were ruling Rome at the time. People wanted Herod dead, and so he fled all the way to Rome, and he connected with his old pal, a guy named Mark Antony, who at that time was one of three rulers in Rome. And he appealed to Antony about him being the one most qualified, most fit to rule over Judea. And so Antony, after hearing Herod and agreeing with him, brought Herod and Herod's argument to the Senate in Rome, and the Senate voted unanimously to appoint Herod, the, the king over Judea, and they gave him the official title, King of the Jews. So Herod, historians would say, bought the title King of the Jews. He wasn't born with the title King of the Jews. Now, I suspect that if someone had showed up and said to Herod, where is he who's been born King of the Jews? Herod would have said, well, that's me. I mean, I wasn't born, but you get it. But then they had another detail. We saw his star rise. And this is when we learn that Herod becomes troubled. 
He becomes angry. He becomes disturbed. Why? What does a star have to do with anything? Well, once again, context. In the ancient world, people believed that stars, comets, movement in the heavenly spheres actually dictated things on earth, and stars and comets specifically actually pointed toward a change in the presidential administration of their day. Tacitus, another ancient historian, tells us that there was a cosmic event, we don't know what it was, during the reign of King Nero, who was king after Jesus over Rome. He was the emperor, the Caesar. And this is what Tacitus tells us. He says, a comet blazed into view, and in the opinion of the crowd, it was an apparition boding change to monarchies. Hence, as though Nero were already dethroned, men began to inquire whom the next choice, on whom the next choice should fall. So these guys show up and are asking about the king of the Jews because the star has risen. And what we know is that Herod was already famously paranoid. Herod was so paranoid that he actually had several members of his family, including wives and children, murdered because he was convinced they were trying to usurp the throne from him. Herod was so famously paranoid and murderous that it led Augustus Caesar to say of him, it's safer to be the swine of Herod than one of his own kids. And so Herod's paranoid, disturbed. And it says, and all Jerusalem is disturbed with him. Because all of Jerusalem knows what a maniac this kind of guy is, and they're nervous about what he might do because they know the truth. People who are scared do not act well. And so Herod tries to hide a little bit of this concern. And so it says then he brings in the religious elite, the experts, the people who know all of the answers. And he begins saying to them, hey, these guys showed up. We don't really know where they're from. They have all this stuff with them. They're talking about this king that was supposed to be born. Do you know anything about this? Which, by the way, is a, is a little bit of social commentary on the fact that Herod, who has the title king of the Jews, doesn't know anything about their faith. And the high priests and the, the scribes and the teachers of the law are quick to answer and say, of course, it's Bethlehem, which is only five miles to the south and a little bit to the east from Jerusalem. You can see one city from the other. In other words, they say, yeah, right next door. And we know this because the prophet Micah has talked about it. And Herod starts thinking to himself, well, if I know where this guy's born, maybe I can do something about it. And he enlists the help of the Magi, to do this. But then we're told something interesting about the Magi. They want to know where this king is born because they want to what? Worship him. Now, this is where Matthew begins to get really subversive around religion. Because the Magi, even though we put them up in our nativity scenes all around our homes and cities every year, the Magi, this is not a complimentary label in the Christian scriptures. Everywhere else Magi are named in the Christian scriptures, it's always negative. These are people who are into divination, into the magic arts, into astrology, into all sorts of questionable things that to an observant, faithful, religious person would say, they're dangerous, they're off course, careful who you hang out with, and all those other things. By contrast, the priests and the scribes and the teachers of the law that Herod enlists, now these are the people that you would look up to. 
These are the people with all of the answers. These are the people who know what's actually really happening in the world. But the contrast that Matthew draws is this. There's one group who clearly has all the answers. They don't show up asking questions. They show up spouting truth. They're the religious. Then you have, for better, lack of a better term, the pagans, the unsaved, the unbelievers, we might say. They show up with questions, and their intent is to worship. It's a not-so-subtle dig that Matthew is making here on the religious establishment that is only interested in answers and not worship. Contrasting them with pagans who admit we don't have the answers, but we're very interested in worship. This points, by the way, to a truth in our world. You can be right about something while simultaneously being dead wrong. You can have all of the answers and actually not know anything. You can be right and yet be wrong, and you can be wrong and be right. This is what Matthew's playing with here. And then he tells us that Herod tries to hatch this plan, which we'll talk about more next week, and get the Magi to kind of scout out the situation for him and come back and give him a report. And so they go on their way, and it says they continue to follow the star, and it comes to rest over the place where Jesus is, and they're overwhelmed with joy, and they walk inside, and they see the mother, and they see the child, and they fall on their faces, and they worship they bow down, and they worship. And then they offer up gifts to Jesus. I often wonder what was going through the mind of Jesus' parents. Like, was there anything in them that were like, I think you have the wrong house. Where did you say you were from? Would you like anything to eat? Like, I mean, what was going on with this whole scene? These educated people from a distant land who were considered pagans, who definitely would have been considered unclean according to Jewish faith and tradition, show up, and they're the first people in Matthew's gospel who not only recognize Jesus, but worship him. Surrounded by the religious, it's the pagans who show up and go, we know who you are, and we know what the only proper response is. By the way, this is not something that's unique in any of the gospels, whether it be Matthew, Mark, or Luke. One of the things they constantly do is they kind of provoke thought of saying, hey, everyone who's supposed to know who Jesus is doesn't. The scholar Miroslav Volf speaks about this in his book, God's Life in Trinity, and says this, at the heart of the gospel narratives is a controversy concerning the identity of Jesus Christ. In the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or I'm sorry, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those closest to Jesus regularly misidentify him. Often disciples are physically close in proximity to Jesus, yet they often misunderstand his words and actions. The ones who most often recognize Jesus' true identity are apparently minor characters in the stories. A leper, a Roman centurion, the Gadarene demoniac, a paralytic, a hemorrhaging woman, two blind men, a Canaanite woman, and the centurion at the foot of the cross. So the Gospels themselves witness to the fact that Jesus' own identity is most likely to be recognized by those who live on the boundaries, beyond the pale, and on the margins. I might add, 
not necessarily in the halls of seminaries and in the seats of churches. This week, um, I was invited to go and speak and be a part of a panel speaking about Christian nationalism, and it was with a group of Jewish friends in a synagogue here in town. So I walk in, and I actually said after it was like a joke, because I'm sitting next to a rabbi and a politician. (laughs) And at the end, I was like, so hey, a rabbi, a politician, a pastor walk into a room, and none of us talked too long where we got buzzed, because they actually had like a timer. We were like fist bumping. Like, there is a God. There are miracles. It's a Christmas miracle. It's not a Christmas miracle, because we're, anyway. um, So I go in, and I didn't know until I showed up. When I walked in, my friend Jill, who's Jewish, who had invited me, said, hey, by the way, you're the only Christian in the room and the only one on the panel. And I was like, okay. And so the state representative I'm sitting next to grew up as an Orthodox Jew and has converted to a Reformed Judaism, but still Jewish. And so we're talking about the dangers of Christian nationalism. I would call it the demonic nature, by the way. I don't use that word very often, but this one I will. And as I'm listening to them, they're telling story after story of their own personal moments where they've been humiliated, they've been verbally attacked, they've been threatened physically. They pointed out the fact that they have an armed security guard standing right in the front doors of the synagogue because there's just been too many shootings in synagogues and too many Jewish people uh, who have been experiencing violence to take any chances. And as sobering as it was to listen to their stories, they began pointing out a lot of this hate and a lot of this violence and a lot of this vitriol and a lot of this rhetoric is coming from people who call themselves Christians. Like Kanye West. And we can all be like, oh, it's Kanye being Kanye. Kanye has 32 million followers on Twitter, and there are 14.8 million Jews in the entire world. If you don't believe that a guy like him spouting this hate rhetoric praising the likes of Hitler and the Nazis, isn't doing something to the national and global psyche, you are naive at best and you're denying a reality. To sit next to my friends, my Jewish friends, who talk about how every day they wake up scared waiting for something to drop. How since the Anti-Defamation League has begun reporting instances of anti-Semitism in 1979, the year with the highest amount of anti-Semitic violence since they've been keeping record in 1979 was 2021. And the number of those that can be traced back to people who claim Christianity. Now, we might want to say here and go, we're not those kind of Christians. I'm happy you have the privilege of saying that. One of the questions that came from the audience directed to me was, so are you talking about capital C Christianity or lowercase c? And I said, help me out. Would you unpack that more? He said, well, are these people who are doing this, do they see themselves as like legitimate Christians, like this is Christianity? Or do they see themselves as like a subset of it? And I said, no, I hate to tell you this, but they're capital C Christians, and they really actually think that the way that they live and the way that they believe and the way they think is exactly what Jesus thought. And then I said, Jesus wasn't even a Christian. And they all laughed. And then I explained to them, by the way, I say that in some Christian contexts, and people gasp in horror, forgetting that Jesus was, in fact, Jewish. 
I pointed out to them that they think it's the capital C Christian to the extent that this is why Jesus looks like he's from Sweden in most of our Christian art. Forgetting he was a Middle Eastern peasant. And as I listened to them talk, I had a range of emotions and it landed in deep and abiding, sobering sadness. Because initially what I wanted to do was disassociate from all of that and throw rocks at all of it and say, oh, it's wrong, I'm not one of them. And then I began to ask questions, in what ways am I like them? Where I'll use my faith, I'll use my beliefs, I'll use my dogma, whatever it is, to further my own idea. That I might be someone with all the answers, but I might not be someone interested in worshiping. And the more I listen to them, the more I begin to realize I'm in a room with individuals where there are Christians who say, you are the problem. But as I listened to them share about all of the hate directed toward them, there was one comment that stood out, and it was from the state representative seated next to me who talked about the abuse she had taken from another state representative who proudly wears a Jesus button on the Senate floor every single time that she's there. And this Jewish woman went to her and said, I know enough about your Jesus to know this. He said, love your neighbor as yourself, which is a quote from our scriptures, which we share. You are my neighbor, and I want to learn to love you. And I thought to myself, here's a woman who so many would say is wrong, and yet everything I saw in her was absolutely positively right. All the groups that we want to break into, all the ways we want to divide things, us and them, it's bullcrap. It doesn't work. Does not work. It's really convenient when you want to feel better about yourself, but it doesn't work. I think this is what Matthew's beginning to push into. You have one group that comes with questions, open-hearted, one group that's interested in worship and in experience, and another group that has all of the answers but doesn't seem interested in any of that. And by the way, this kind of attitude I see it everywhere because there's nothing more dangerous than an individual who believes that they are speaking for and defending the God that they believe in. And I see this with progressives. I see it with conservatives. I see it with Republicans. And I see it with Democrats. I see it everywhere. I see it in myself. Do we want the answers or do we want to worship? Do we have all of the facts or do we have a list of questions? Matthew tells us that this list of questions, this curiosity, this worship, this willingness to bow, this generosity of offering gifts leads the magi to Jesus. And then at the very end, he adds this detail. And warned in a dream, they go home by another route. And you're like, then what? We don't know. It's just like one of those movies where it feels like really artistic and then all of a sudden credits start rolling and you're like, are you kidding me? I spent two hours of my life for this, like, you need to wrap it up in a bow and make everything perfect. This just tells you how influenced we are by Disney, by the way. Now, they go home by another route, but here's what I would say, and many scholars, I'm indebted to them for this insight. That's not the way the story ends. It's the way it ends in the tr particular translation we're reading from. Because the word root is the Greek word hados, 
Some of you were like, oh, hados, of course. <laughs> that word hados is most often translated in Matthew's gospel as the word way, as in way of life. And Matthew is constantly playing with one way versus another way. And a more literal translation would be, they want home in a different way. And many scholars point out, what Matthew's subtly doing here is saying, can you go home in any other fashion after you've had a real experience of the Christ? Of course you're going to go home a different way. Because you've had an experience. This story actually in church tradition is called the Epiphany. It's Christ revealing himself to the Gentiles. Revealing himself to the Gentiles in their language and in their traditions by using the stars and everything else. Too often us religious people are like, well, if it's somewhere outside of our box, it's probably bad. But here Matthew's going, no, Christ revealed in their language and it changes them. Because the epiphany is about an experience. The epiphany doesn't come up from within us. It's asking us, are you open enough to receive something from outside yourself? Because when you experience that, you will go home in a different way. And everything will be different. Because you are different. T.S. Eliot, in a less scholarly way, but in a more poetic way, taps into this in his poem, The Journey of the Magi. At the very end, he talks about what it was like in the first person for this king to return home. And these are his words. Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but, they, but thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We return to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in this old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. In other words, I encountered the birth of the true king. And in this new life, I was brought to my own death and in that death, I experienced a new life. Because this is what worship does. This is what questions do. This is what living with a, a, a life that is open to whatever comes to us does. It's an experience, which is what Jesus is. He's not an idea. In a few minutes, we'll actually celebrate Eucharist together, participate in Eucharist together. Why do we do this week in, week out? Because when you receive that piece of bread and you hear words spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you. When you dip that bread in the wine and you hear the blood of Christ shed for you, that's not an idea. It's an invitation to an experience. To remember that we as the body of Christ are invited to, like Jesus, be broken open and poured out. This table isn't us saying we have all the answers. It's not us going, we believe in this really cool concept 
It's an invitation to participate in an experience, in imitation of Christ. It is a question that asks each one of us, are you here to worship? Or are you here because you have all the answers and you're just waiting for those to be affirmed and confirmed? I said last week that Matthew's gospel doesn't seem to be as popular as Luke's gospel. I mean, maybe it's because it's Luke's gospel that gets read every year in Merry Christmas, Charlie Brown. I don't know. But part of me believes that one of the reasons we kind of steer away a little bit from Matthew's gospel each year is because when it comes to Christmas, we love the nostalgia. We love the sentimentalness of the whole thing. But what I'm learning as we walk through this season of Advent is that Christmas, sure, it has nostalgia and sentiment, but it's also a very disruptive celebration. It's a very confrontive celebration. And in this short story that Matthew tells about these mysterious characters, he's posing a question that Christmas poses every year when we're confronted with the child born of the virgin. What are you here for? Let's pray together. God, I, uh, you know, I don't even know what to pray. This story is disruptive. So maybe I'll just ask that you would allow us to be honest, to pay attention to what happens when we're confronted with the birth of Jesus. That we listen. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all my friends said, Thanks for engaging with our teaching today. Before you go, we want to highlight a few things going on in the life of our community. We are in the second week of Advent, where we look forward with hope to the coming of Jesus. This year has been filled with different emotions for all of us. We may feel tired and weary, refreshed and hopeful, isolated and unseen, but during this Advent season, may we be reminded that God has always been with us and that we are invited to participate as the physical embodiment of the divine presence in our world here and now. In a season where we anticipate the coming of Emmanuel, God with us, may we remember these words, Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes, you are his body. Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on this world. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. If you are looking to lean more deeply into the spiritual mystery of this season, we would love for you to take a look at our Advent resources. You can find them in our app or visit denverchurch.org to explore. To stay connected with all that is happening in the life of our community, we encourage you to sign up for our weekly email or download our DCC app. Again, thank you for joining us on our podcast today. And now may you, our siblings in Christ, continue to explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we might become a healing presence in our world. Go in peace.